Welcome to the Mayo Clinic Cardiovascular Continuing Medical Education Podcast. Join us each week to discuss the most pressing topics in cardiology and gain valuable insights that can be directly applied to your practice. Welcome to Interview with the Experts. My name is Kyle Clarich, and I'm a consultant in cardiovascular medicine at Mayo Clinic, Rochester, Minnesota. And I have great pleasure of being here today with Alan Lewis, who is a consultant in cardiovascular diseases, also in the practice in Rochester, who is the director of the pericardial disease clinic and an expert on cardiovascular treatment of pericarditis, which is evolving. And that's one of the reasons we asked him to come today. And Alan, thank you so much for being here. Thank you very much for having me, Kyle. Alan, this is a podcast for our professionals, uh, but maybe we should just start at the beginning. What is complicated recurrent pericarditis? So complicated pericarditis, Kyle, is a term used to describe anyone that has pericarditis that is any more complex than just your routine run-of-the-mill acute pericarditis. So this encompasses your, your recurrent pericarditis, your chronic pericarditis, as well as your constrictive pericarditis. Now, we're going to be talking today on the recurrent pericarditis, and so this is typically of inflammatory etiology. It uh, typically has a duration of between six weeks or so in between the various episodes. And it has a bit of an overlap, the chronic pericarditis uh, that are also inflammatory that don't sort of go away in between. So this could be anything from someone who has a first bout of pericarditis, gets some treatment, uh, maybe with the typical non-steroidal type treatment in coltracine, but then has a, has a lapse and then has it come back again. It could be even something where they've had multiple episodes with treatments and then recurrence and recurrence and just can't get off of maybe steroids at this point, or it could be someone presenting with uh, constrictive pericarditis uh, with maybe an inflammatory component still. Absolutely, Kyle. So it can include the whole spectrum of sort of pericardial diseases that's beyond acute pericarditis. Well, that's great. And of the acute pericarditis that we see in clinical practice, do, do we have an idea of how often acute pericarditis will transition into the chronic recurrent type of pericarditis? So, about, so it depends on the treatment given for the acute pericarditis episodes. In the general population, you expect sort of one in five people would go on to have a second episode of pericarditis after an initial episode of pericarditis. If you give colchicine, you, you significantly lower that to about one in eight or one in nine patients. So there is a benefit to giving colchicine at the initial index episode that reduces your risk of recurrence. And so anywhere between one in five people to one in nine people would have a recurrent episode. And so the ideal treatment for first episode of pericarditis now would be non-steroidals plus colchicine. Absolutely. Great. So now a patient's maybe been treated a couple times with non-steroidals and coltracine, they're on their third or say fourth episode. What, what approach do you take to these patients that would be presenting with this recurrent pericarditis? Sure, and we see these patients fairly often in pericardial clinic, Kyle, they come in, they're complaining of chest pain um, and they've had these sort of recurrent episodes of chest pain. And I, I really like to start from the beginning. I think it really is imperative 
that we sort of start with the history and retake the history. I think there is this thing that we're taught in medical school that, you know, if someone's had a disease before, that's the most likely diagnosis for their future presentations. But what I find in clinic is it's really important to take a step back and look at each individual occurrence and see, is it pericarditis or is it not pericarditis? People often, you know, when they've had previous episodes of pain, they're likely to attribute it to the same thing. They're likely to find similarities between episodes because they have an explanation for it. And so it's really important to tease out what is going on, what are the precipitating factors, what makes it better, what makes it worse. Because what I find in clinic is that a significant proportion of these patients presenting with recurrent pericarditis actually have musculoskeletal chest pain rather than truly recurrent pericarditis. I try and look at the supportive evidence. So when they've had recurrent bouts of pericarditis, have they had a CRP that's elevated or an ESR that's elevated to support the diagnosis of inflammation at each of those sort of episodes that they've had? And then where they've had further imaging, does that imaging support the diagnosis of, of recurrent pericarditis? And so I think the, the key approach that I take is really taking a step back and sort of looking at, is each episode a real episode of pericarditis and avoiding that temptation to label all chest pain in my patients as recurrent pericarditis. That's a really good teaching point, I think, for all of us to take care of patients with chest pain, uh, because as we know, it's very difficult sometimes to sort these out. But it sounds like you use a lot of supporting data, such as the CRP and sedimentation rate. Do you get those with every episode? If you were saying watching these patients locally, would you get those? Would you recommend that our clinicians get those with every episode of chest pain? I think, you know, Kyle, it's, it's good to have good supporting evidence because you're going to escalate treatment in these patients. Mm -hmm. So when, when my patients call in and they've had these episodes of chest pain, uh, some of them are not local. I would have a tendency to get inflammatory markers in all of them at the time of an episode. And, you know, if they're, if they're not elevated, sometimes they're not elevated the initial time you check them. But if you, if you wait a couple of days and recheck and they have ongoing symptoms, they're usually elevated if it's truly an episode of, of acute pericarditis. You mentioned imaging too. So you, you get the inflammatory markers as you just outlined. And then what's the role of say echo and or cardiac MRI? And how do you choose when to use these uh, different imaging techniques uh, to help you make that important distinction? Thanks, Kyle. That's a great question. And, you know, I think the most important piece is that initial uh, look at the history, look at the examination, look at the inflammatory markers. But as we all know, ESR and CRP are fairly nonspecific. And there are a variety of different complaints, including chest complaints that can put up your ESR and CRP. So I tend to like uh, doing an echo and an MRI or, or an MRI, depending on the patient's history, at the time that I first see them, where there is any uncertainty as to what the cause of their presentation is. I find that echo and MRI are good for different things, and they give you slightly different pieces of information, and neither one replaces the other. Echo's strength is really the ability to define hemodynamics, and MRI is a very good anatomical test that gives you a good idea of anatomy. So if there is a question of, is there hemodynamic evidence of constriction in my patient, 
I tend to prefer the echo because it gives us a lot of different parameters that look very carefully at constriction and have been shown to have a high correlation with CAS for the diagnosis of constriction. And so I find that a very useful method. However, on the flip side, it is difficult to anatomically see pericardial thickness and degree of pericardial inflammation on echocardiogram. On the other hand, with a cardiac MRI, they have much more difficulty looking for evidence of constriction on MRI because they don't get all the hemodynamic information, but they get very good anatomical information regarding the pericardium. They're able to tell you what, how thick the pericardium is very well. They're able to tell you is there enhance, uh, sorry, gadolinium enhancement in the pericardium on imaging, and that can be a marker of fibrosis or a marker of inflammation. Uh, and I, so I find that very useful to have that MRI with gadolinium to, to sort of pinpoint the CRP and put that together with the, with the pericardium. The only caveat to that is that the MRI changes of pericarditis, namely the delayed gadolinium enhancement, can take a long time to go away. And I've seen pericardiums abnormal even a year after the index episode of pericarditis. And so I use it more of a marker of they've had pericarditis before um, rather than you know, necessarily ongoing pericardial inflammation. They're also able to look for edema or swelling on the MRI, and I find that very useful to know if there's significant amounts of inflammation, and I use that as a guide for acute pericardial inflammation. So it sounds like echo and MRI are both necessary because they're complementary. You're relying on the echo to give you the hemodynamics and the consequences of long-standing pericardial disease, such as constriction and you're relying on the cardiac MRI to give you a hint to whether there has been pericarditis, i.e. the delayed gadolinium enhancement, and whether there may be ongoing inflammation, and that would be related to whether the pericardium is, is thickened or not. Is that correct? Absolutely, Kyle. That's a really nice summary. Fantastic. Well, it's a, it's a complex area, and, and these really recurrent cases can be quite difficult. But what's really encouraging and what's very exciting, I think, in your field and all of our fields is up until recently, we haven't had fantastic therapies. We've had, so, you know, we know that we can use coltracine and nonsteroidals for the first, maybe the second bout. Uh, we've had uh, we've had pericardiectomies that we've been doing with a great deal of success here at Mayo for a number of years. But more recently, there's been some new therapies on the horizon. And I wonder if you could just walk us through how you would go through the treatment algorithms for a patient with recurrent pericarditis um, in this day and age? Sure, that sounds great, Kyle. And so I tend to follow the algorithm proposed in the ESC guidelines. So the European Society of Cardiology had published guidelines on the management of pericardial diseases in 2015. And I think they nicely illustrate the treatment pattern that we should consider following. Exactly as you said, initial treatment should be with non-steroidal anti-inflammatories in combination with colchicine and exercise restriction. It's important to remember that exercise restriction because we tend to notice that as we taper medications, if patients are particularly vigorous with their exercise, then that tends to result in, in flares around the time of medication tapering. The really important thing in, in pericarditis is remembering that whatever medication you put them on, you need to have it there for an adequate length of time. And that tapering tends to be really important. You want the inflammation gone before you taper and you wanna taper slowly to prevent recurrent inflammation. 
in patients who have, have symptoms despite non-steroidal anti-inflammatories and colchicine, you would work your way down the ladder. And so this is not patients who have had resolution of their symptoms and recurrence, but rather patients who have had um, ongoing symptoms despite these therapies. And so if they fail non-steroidal anti-inflammatories and colchicine, I then move on to corticosteroids. I, uh, you would tend to start with corticosteroids at a dose of a quarter to a half milligram per kilogram per day. I find in most patients starting at about 20 milligrams of prednisone is sufficient. I used to start at higher doses. The issue with higher doses is that it gives you faster pain relief, but it significantly lengthens your length of time tapering the medication. And so I find that in most patients, 20 milligrams seems to be a sufficient dose to start with. And it's closer to that quarter milligram per kilogram rather than the half milligram per kilogram. Again, here with steroid tapering, you have to remember that when you start steroids, that this is going to be months of steroid tapering. I think what we frequently see is patients get started with an asthma dose pack sort of regime of prednisone, and they're tapered off prednisone in two weeks. Virtually universally, these are the patients that tend to flare. So if you're putting patients on prednisone, you're going to start them on prednisone, you're going to keep them on it for a couple of weeks, and then you're going to taper them really, really slowly, uh, as is well illustrated in those ESC guidelines. And it's going to be steroids for a number of months. One of the tricks I employ with steroids is to uh, check inflammatory markers before I down titrate the doses. And if the, there is evidence of inflammation, I hold off reducing the prednisone dose until that inflammation has gone away. Generally, I give colchicine in, co in combination with colchicine in combination with the corticosteroid. In those patients that I'm unable to wean corticosteroid, I would then move on to the next step of the ladder. And the next step of the ladder includes the IL-1 inhibitors. It includes azathioprine and it includes intravenous immunoglobulin. I think really my preferred agent for this group of patients is the IL-1 receptor blocker. And we have a lot of experience using them now. Uh, recently, uh, we've traditionally used Anakindra for this indication without FDA approval. Uh, and more recently, Rolonicept has been approved for the treatment of recurrent pericarditis and is FDA approved for that indication. And so a lot has changed in that space because we now have an IL-1 receptor blocker that is freely available and indicated for recurrent pericarditis. And that has made a big difference to treatment. What IL-1 inhibition has allowed us to do is to be able to wean corticosteroids and have patients avoid those side effects of corticosteroids uh, by moving them on to IL-1 inhibitors. IL-1 inhibition typically is a prolonged course of therapy. We often give a year's worth of IL-1 inhibition before we would take away the IL-1 inhibitor. There really is a, is a lack of data out there to tell us exactly how long we should treat patients for with an IL-1 inhibitor, but it seems that the less inflammation that there is at the time that we terminate it, probably the better it is. IL-1 inhibition, however, does have a risk of recurrent pericarditis, and um, in, in some of those patients, despite attempts at IL-1 inhibition, they do have recurrent episodes of pericarditis, and they can recur. 
And so the question then winds up being, how long are you gonna continue an IL-1 inhibitor for, or should you move on to definitive therapy? And so that sort of brings me to the final line of therapy, which is surgical pericardectomy. The important thing with surgical pericardectomy for recurrent pericarditis is you're looking for a truly radical pericardectomy. I've worked at other centers where we do a routine pericardectomy for, for constriction. And in constrictive pericarditis, taking off the anterior and inferior pericardium as is routine for a complete pericardectomy is satisfactory and it resolves the constriction. The problem with recurrent pericarditis is that whatever pericardium you leave behind is sufficient to cause a significant amount of inflammation and a significant amount of pain to the patient. And so it's really important that we get the superior and the posterior pericardium out in its entirety. And so here at Mayo Clinic, we typically do a radical pericardectomy in these patients. And that's become our sort of standard, whether it's constrictive or recurrent pericarditis. And so we aim to take the pericardium out in its entirety, sparing only the tiny amounts of pericardium that run along the phrenic nerves and the pericardium between the pulmonary veins uh, in order to minimize the pericardium left behind to minimize the, the substrate for further inflammation. Sorry for the long-winded explanation there. No, that's, that's great. I, I only had um, really one question about that IL-1 inhibition. You said you could leave the patient on it for about a year, and then you have to think about if they're not getting better, if their inflammatory markers are not going down, maybe a definitive therapy with pericardiectomy. What do we have to be worried about while they're on an IL-1 inhibitor? Is there any side effects um, besides when you taper it that they may have recurrence or are there other things that we should be following or worried about during that therapy? So Kyle, I'm just going to clarify, clarify one thing there. So IL-1 inhibition and recurrent pericarditis tends to be highly effective. So when we start an IL-1 inhibitor, within a couple of weeks, the inflammation tends to go away. And so while the patient remains on an IL-1 inhibitor, they tend not to have a lot of inflammation. The main issue is that when we take away the IL-1 inhibitor at the end of therapy, that's when we notice that some people at some stage following withdrawal of the IL-1 inhibitor, that they develop recurrent pericarditis. And one may hypothesize that that is due to some amount of tiny residual inflammation. Some would hypothesize that it is due to the speed at which the IL-1 inhibitor was withdrawn and should have been tapered. We don't have a good understanding of why patients recur at that phase after a long time of being stable in IL-1 inhibitor. But what we do know is that there is a risk of recurrence. In terms of your questions of what to watch out for, so routinely, before we commence patients on an IL-1 inhibitor, I routinely screen all my patients for tuberculosis. I screen them all for hepatitis B and C, and I screen them for HIV. If they have any of those things, then I would tend to avoid an IL-1 inhibitor because I would be concerned about um, accelerating the course of their disease. We don't know what IL-1 inhibition does in, in patients who are pregnant, and so that would be an instance that you would potentially avoid it in. We also don't know what IL-1 inhibition does in patients with malignancy, and those, these were patients that were excluded from the recent Rhapsody study looking at Rolanosep uh, because of the risk of 
uh, accelerating tumor growth by suppressing the immune system. It's a theoretical concern, but these are the patients that you would exhibit caution in, in terms of implementing therapy for. That makes a lot of sense. Um, is there anything else that you want to say about azathioprine or IG, IVIG? I think um, azathioprine or IVIG are, are reasonable alternatives to try. I think the reality amongst our pericardial group is, is that we tend to find the IL-1 inhibitors most effective in terms of therapy. Um, I have a, a number of patients in whom rheumatology has tried azathioprine or, or methotrexate. Um, the success has been variable with those agents. And so I think in the current era, we've, we've probably moved towards using IL-1 inhibition in that third-line therapy rather than azathioprine or, or IVIG. Sometimes for cost reasons or insurance reasons, we may choose one of those other two agents. But I honestly feel that IL-1 inhibition with either anakendra or uh, rilanocept has tend to become our preferred treatment. Great. Well, that helps a lot. I think that at least it's nice to know that in some patients where IL-1 inhibition might not be applicable for the reasons you outlined, we could potentially think about some of the other alternative therapies. So, boy, we've covered a lot of ground. And um, I think what you did was really describe very well how we can get into problems with uh, recurrent pericarditis, but we have to be very certain that we are dealing with that as a, as a diagnosis as you said, by taking a step back and trying to confirm that these recurrent chest pain episodes are really related to pericardial pain. And then using the complementary uh, tools that we have available to us in echo and cardiac MRI to look at their hemodynamics by echo and the inflammatory uh, processes um, within, of course, the delayed gadolinium of the, of the uh, pericardium itself with the cardiac MRI. And then ultimately, um, I think it's going to really need to be, uh, you know, if we cannot get resolution, then they have to go to a referral center, uh, where, which has been used to be doing uh, a lot of pericardiectomies in order to get that radical um, definitive therapy, such as a radical, we call it a radical pericardiectomy. It's really not a radical therapy. We've been doing it for years and years. But for our audience, what would be a a number of pericardiectomies, or is it the number that they're being done in the centers or is it the way that they approach it or maybe some combination thereof? When you, when you say, I wanna send my patient to a referral center, how do we judge those referral centers? So I think, you know, it's their experience in treating your particular patient. So it's their experience in treating a patient with recurrent pericarditis. Um, it would be partially driven by what their volumes of, of uh, pericardectomies are. And the other important thing is how does the particular surgeon do their pericardectomy? Is the surgeon planning to take off the anterior pericardium? Are they planning to take off the anterior and inferior pericardium? Are they planning to take off the posterior part of the pericardium or not? And, you know, the, the terminology may vary, but it's really important to, to speak with the surgeon and know how much they are planning to take off because Really, the goal is to leave them with, with no pericardium, essentially, is your, is your end goal. And so it really, it could be a conversation between, between the surgeon and yourself. And at centers such as ours, you know, it's routine that we do a radical pericardectomy, whether it's constriction or recurrent, that we take it out in its entirety. But where there is uncertainty, it's best to clarify with the surgeon to really know what, what they're planning to do. 
In addition, a, a lot of centers do their pericardectomies off pump. Um, that means without the support of cardiopulmonary bypass. It can be difficult in a fully filled heart to be able to access that posterior pericardium. And so our surgeons would have a tendency to do the pericardectomies where required on cardiopulmonary bypass in order to allow them to, to remove the pericardium in its entirety. Great. Well, that, that was really a very uh, comprehensive overview of recurrent pericarditis, which, which can be a very difficult problem, as you've alluded to, and how touchy it is about you know, tapering at a slow pace and then when to choose these higher levels of therapy. So I appreciate your uh, expertise in this area. Do you have any final comments that you want to make before we close our, our podcast today? No, I, I think that we've summarized this quite nicely, Kyle. I think, you know, the key things are making sure that the pericarditis is truly pericarditis and not a carryover diagnosis, sort of confirming each episode with, um, uh, with inflammatory markers to know that what you think is pericarditis is pericarditis as evidenced by elevated inflammatory markers. Um, I think it's knowing that it's important to taper your medications really, really slowly, maybe guided by inflammatory markers as you taper them off. And then knowing that you have the availability of additional therapy beyond your traditional corticosteroid, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory colchicine, and you can move on to an IL-1 inhibitor in the right group of patients. And that radical uh, surgical pericardectomy is effective uh, when done at, at experienced hands that are used to removing these. Fantastic. Alan, thank you so much for your time and your uh, very detailed explanations of this complex uh, medical problem in cardiology. Have thank a great you, day. Kevin. Thank you for your attention, everybody. We'll look forward to talking to you again in the near future. Thank you for joining us today. Feel free to share your thoughts and suggestions about the podcast by emailing cvselfstudy at mayo.edu. Be sure to subscribe to the Mayo Clinic Cardiovascular CME podcast on your favorite platform and tune in each week to explore today's most pressing cardiology topics with your colleagues at Mayo Clinic.